X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Tuesday, March 23rd. Today, back in the day in 1910, Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa was born. Kurosawa was born in Tokyo with four siblings and a moderately wealthy family. His father showed him his first film at the age of six, at a time when Western culture was generally poorly regarded in Japanese society. In 1935, Kurosawa got a job as an assistant director at the new studio, Photochemical Laboratories, later called Toho Studios. The first film he directed was Senshiro Sagata, based on the novel of the same name. He would go on to direct and write 30 films over the span of nearly 60 years. Some of his more famous films include Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Ikiru, and Dreams. His obituary says Kurosawa was, quote, an autocratic perfectionist with a painter's eye for composition, a dancer's sense of movement, and a humanist's quiet sensibility. Many Western directors, including Fellini, Tartofsky, Kubrick, and Scorsese have cited him as a chief inspiration. Today, back in the day in 1857, the first commercial elevator made its first trip up and down. In 1853, Alicia Graves Otis founded Otis Elevator. Hydraulic elevators had already existed for some time, but Otis's was the first that could go down just as safely as it could go up. And that's important. (laughs) The first commercial use was installed in a five-story department store at Broadway and Broom in New York City. Otis's company sold 2,000 elevators by 1873. Not that it was an easy feat to convince people of their safety. In 1853, Otis pulled a stunt at the New York World's Fair in which he cut the rope that supported the platform he was standing on. He shocked audiences when his patented safety brakes kept the platform from falling. And today, back in the day in 1806, Lewis and Clark began their long journey back east. The Corps of Discovery departed from Camp Dubois in Illinois on May 14, 1804. Over the year, the party, assisted by about two dozen indigenous tribes along the way, went west and reached the Pacific Ocean on November 7, 1805. Eventually, they set up Fort Clatsop near modern-day Astoria. They stayed until today, 215 years ago. The team headed back and reached St. Louis in September of 1806. And today, back in the day, in 2020, X-Ray FM launched a daily local news podcast called The Local. A labor of love, The Local was launched in a time of uncertainty. An emerging global pandemic was bearing down, and there was a need to come together and keep going. The first episode included an interview with candidate and incumbent mayor Ted Wheeler. We discussed a new statewide shelter-in-place order and reported on a COVID case count of 161. Since that day, we've kept you up to date on COVID, covered a historic election, kept you engaged in the protests and advocacy from our neighbors, and we brought you voices from across our community. We strive to keep you informed, inspired, and active in our hometown and yours. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thank you for the support. And here's to a less 
newsworthy year. X-ray. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Toya Fick, Executive Director of Stanford Children, Oregon. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. X-ray. Oregon State University trustees are considering action against school president F. King Alexander today. Alexander has been accused of mishandling complaints against students and sports faculty about sexual violence and harassment while he was president of Louisiana State University. The story was first reported in USA Today and later supported by an independent investigation published on March 3rd. In a 12-2 vote last Wednesday, the Oregon State University Board decided not to terminate Alexander. He was instead placed on probation through June 1st. The board also hired an outside consultant to review Alexander's behavior while at Oregon State. But the backlash continued against President Alexander. Last Thursday, OSU faculty took a vote of no confidence against Alexander and called for the trustees to resign. Governor Kate Brown even called upon the board to fire the university president. So now, today, the board will once again consider possible action against Alexander. The meeting will be open to the public. And now your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 178 new coronavirus cases. That makes a total of 161,706. The Oregon Health Authority also reported two new deaths. 2,365 Oregonians have died from the virus. Portland Krispy Kreme is offering a free donut every day for anyone who has been vaccinated. Do you have a COVID-19 vaccination card? You can get a glazed donut from Krispy Kreme for free anytime, any day, every day, until the end of the year. A spokesperson for the company said that the promotion is all about awareness. Quote, I think anything anyone can do to help show support for those getting the vaccine is a good thing right now. And so we're just trying to do what little we can. Krispy Kreme, along with other major retailers like Trader Joe's and Best Buy, is also offering paid time off for employees to get vaccinated. Lawmakers introduced a bill to limit corporate influence over Oregon forestry. SB 335, introduced by Senator Jeff Golden, would make three important changes to the Board of Forestry. One, it would reduce the number of board members who profit off of timber. Two, it would let the governor appoint the powerful state forester rather than the board. And three, it would dissolve the Regional Forest Practices Advisory Committee. Currently, two-thirds of the advisors are private timber owners, private landowners, or work for private owners. So the advisory committee disproportionately represents the interests of the timber industry. In place of the advisory committee, the bill would expand the powers of the Board of Forestry to allow for more influence on policy decisions. Representatives from the timber industry have already expressed opposition to the bill. Many are concerned about reducing the number of board members from the timber industry, citing potential communication breakdowns between the board and foresters. Still, State Senator Jeff Golden says the bill is about democratic transparency. At a hearing last Wednesday, he said, quote, The governance of our regulatory agencies should be free from pronounced influence by the industries they regulate. Oregon's only Republican federal representative joined Democrats on a new immigration bill. 
It's the first time Republican Representative Cliff Bentz has split with his party while voting since taking office. The bill in question is called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. It provides temporary work visas for agricultural workers with a pathway towards potential permanent residency. The bill also covers the spouses and children of farm workers. On Thursday, the bill passed in the House with support from 30 Republican representatives. Bence has a vested interest in agricultural reform. His district accounts for about half of Oregon's agricultural production. However, it seems like Bence's vote had more to do with economic interests than a commitment to immigration reform. He voted against the second major immigration reform bill, which would create a pathway to full citizenship for undocumented immigrants who were brought to America as children. Still, that bill passed as well, this time with only eight Republicans voting in support. The Oregon Ducks beat the Iowa Hawkeyes in their first Sweet 16 game in the NCAA tournament. That means the University of Oregon men's basketball team is advancing to the Sweet 16 in March Madness. Oregon will either face Kansas or Southern California in their next matchup. The Ducks had a hard pandemic season. They were plagued with pauses and injuries, but they still won the Pac-12 regular season title. The Iowa Hawkeyes put up a strong fight, led by Luca Garza, the school's all-time high scorer. But in the end... The Oregon Ducks clinched the game 95-80. to And some good news. The Oregon Historical Society is open for a whole week starting today. The museum will be open from 12 to 5 p.m. starting today until Sunday. However, the Historical Society's research library is still closed for renovations. The Historical Society has two temporary exhibits on display. The first is called Nevertheless, They Persisted and focuses on women's suffrage throughout Oregon history. The second, We Are the Rose City, is all about the history of soccer in Portland. The Historical Society will also host a digital event tomorrow educating the public on racial exclusion in pre-statehood Oregon. Tickets, registration, and more information can be found on the Oregon Historical Society's website. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Up next, we will hear from Toya Fick, the executive director of Stand for Children, a nonprofit focused on equitable education. She spoke with host Christine Alexander about the state of education during the pandemic and provided an update on 2016's Measure 98. Here are Toya and Christine. Good morning. You're listening to X-ray FM. I'm Christine Alexander, your host. Our first guest for the morning is the Oregon Executive Director of Stand for Children, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring quality education for all children. Toya Fick was also one of the primary authors of the successful ballot measure 98 in 2016. Here with us now, Toya Fick. Good morning, Toya. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for being here. A lot going on in terms of Oregon education with the announcement from the governor and, and the hopes to reopen schools. Um, But recently, let's start with this. Recently, you wrote an article for The Oregonian uh, where you discussed the state school fund. Can you describe to listeners what exactly that money does and where it comes from? Sure. Again, thank you so much for having me this morning. So the state provides roughly two thirds of the dollars that pay for K-12 schools. 
And that money can come from personal income taxes and business taxes collected by the state. Some lottery funds are in there as well. The vast majority of that funding goes into what's known as the state school fund. And every two years, the legislature decides how much goes into the state school fund. In fact, it's one of the biggest decisions the legislature makes every year. Right now, that fund's at $9 billion, and the legislature has to decide how much goes in there right now as they're thinking about the next two years of their budget. That money pays for anything you can think of, buses, cafeteria, uh, food, and all kinds of things, right? Salaries, benefits, uh, librarians, books. It pays for a number of things that that our schools need to, to run every single day. So it's a really, really important source of funding for schools that comes from the state. And, and how is the state school fund intended to help students from low-income areas or who otherwise need some extra support? Yeah, sure. So that $9 billion inside the state school fund is distributed to districts by a formula. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that formula that determines how much of the $9 billion goes to each district. But the main thing to remember here is that the formula recognizes that not all students cost the same to educate. So it provides a boost, otherwise known as a weight to districts, uh, for districts who serve kids who live in poverty, who are learning English, kids with special needs. There's a a list of the weights, if you will. Uh, The formula is a distribution formula, so it doesn't say anything about how those dollars or those boost dollars are spent. So the state doesn't have the ability to see where those that boost goes and if it's going to the supports and services and educators and whatnot who uh, serve the kids that generated that additional funding. So that's where that sort of disconnect is that we talked about, that I talked about in my piece uh, on Sunday. And and why do these students end up getting left behind anyway? Well, I mean, there are a lot of factors in it. I mean, there are so many students in our system, it's hard to say like exactly what's happening in each situation, but what we're asking the legislature to do in this situation with the funding formula is to close the loop to make sure that the boost given on the front end of the formula is spent with the intention on the back end to make sure that the kids who need additional support are getting it through the state school fund dollars. And um, I want to mention, we're going to talk about a lot more, but I I, want to mention that um, there's a new agreement between the teachers union and the governor. Portland's Mm -hmm. kindergartners and first graders are um, hoping to return to class on April 1st. Second through fifth graders will join April 5th. Middle and high schoolers set to resume in-person learning on April 19th per orders from the governor. Um, Toya Fick, executive, Oregon Executive Director of Stand for Children, what, what does this mean to you and your organization? Well, I will tell you what it means to me personally. I have a first grader and uh. a fifth grader <laughs> in Portland Public Schools, and while I have enjoyed having them learn in the room next door, it will be lovely to have them go back to school in person for however much time that ends up being, right? Uh, my son is a first grader. He uh, is in a new school, so he hasn't met his classmates or his teacher, and we are excited for that. So April 1st, is a, we, we did a little dance party yesterday <laughs> in my, in my hey! office Woo-hoo! when we learned of uh, this news. <laughs> so I know many families did the same. Um, so we are excited there was agreement reached, and I know not everyone feels the same way about this, but for me personally, we haven't taken a position at Stanford Children, but for me personally, I'm excited that my kids will get to go back to school in uh, less than a month. Yeah, I think um, all of Oregon, even those without kids like me, co- side, uh, uh, heaved a collective sigh of relief. Yeah. 
You know, I've got friends and family who have kids, and I've seen the kids suffering, too. Uh, a lot of them, you know, you would never think they'd want to go to school, but a lot of them want yeah. to go back. <laughs> I mean, I, who knew? I say, you know, I cannot imagine what this would have been like if I did not have the privilege of working from home. So for families who, you know, have to leave home to go to work every day for whatever reason with little kids at home, it's been a lot. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't have kids in school, I think what this experience has taught us is that now, like, regardless of whether or not you have kids in school, school matters and what happens to the children really matters to all of us, right? It's impacted everyone's ability to go out and do the work that they need to do every day. Um, and it's impacted our children. So I'm, you know, excited that we are nearing the end of this situation and hopefully there's, you know, some, I see some light at the end of the tunnel, but yeah, we can all go, okay. (laughs) Moving on. Thank goodness. Boy, what Uh a year. Well, uh, my guest today is Toya Fick. She's the Oregon Executive Director of Stand for Children, a nonprofit. So um, Measure 98 passed with the unanimous vote by lawmakers in 2017. Can you tell us a bit about what the effects of that legislation have been now that it's four years later? Yes. Oh, man, it feels like 20 years ago, but also I can't believe it's been four years. We are so proud that uh, the impact Measure 98 is having having right now in our schools. Uh, Less than a year after funding was provided to districts, the legislature just happened to go on a roadshow to see what's happening in our schools. And they have they went to about 55 different schools around the state and they heard from parents, teachers, kids, uh, district officials from across the state, the impact that Measure 98 was having, even though it had been less than a year when the first dollars went into the buckets. Right. Uh, They were able to do things like hire graduation coaches to help kids who were on the cusp of not graduating to make sure that they were connected to resources and supports to get them on track to graduate. They started new career technical education classes. They worked together as teams to make sure that kids are on track by the end of ninth grade. So these were the three buckets that, you know, districts were able to sort of put money into from Measure 98. Since 2017, about $470 million has gone to school districts to expand career technical education classes, to expand opportunities for kids to get college credit while they're in high school, and to keep kids on track. So we've um, really tried to not repeat the mistakes that we saw in the funding formula by providing the dollars and the direction to districts. And it's it's really working. We meet kids all the time who are impacted by Measure 98 uh, districts. I'll just tell you one quick story. We met a student not too long ago who had gotten 63 college credits before graduating from high school because her school was in an agreement with a local community college and use their Measure 98 funds to pay for her to take classes at the local community college. And so she she went to college with a head start. Um, and so, yeah, and every year when the graduation rates come out, districts are asked, what's going on? How are you able to improve your graduation rates? And they point to Measure 98. Wow. So it's the dollars, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's the dollars and the direction to districts that make a, make a difference. Well, I, I think the part that I, I am, um, that you're educating me on is the, the, uh, direction part. You know, we talk about funding, 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 but if those schools don't have a clear idea of what to do with those dollars and where to put them, how to allocate them, then it doesn't matter how much funding you get, you know, the money needs to be focused on those who need it. That's right. Uh, and the, the funding formula recognizes that on the front end, 
We just want to make the connection to the back end. And again, I know so many superintendents and school board officials and folks who make these decisions, they have great intentions, but really wanting to make sure that the state gives direction is a really important part of the conversation we're having with the legislature this session. Well, I heard you mention technical education. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm um, um, currently now my career, I'm a, a union carpenter. And mm-hmm. I've been volunteering a lot and curious about getting um, the trades back into schools. You know, I, when I was a kid, we had industrial arts and, you know, there were ways to focus on uh, kids who didn't necessarily like in-class learning, wanted to do mm-hmm. something different. And um, now, uh, in addition to that, this this issue of student debt, you know, going to college puts you in debt for the rest of your life. So uh, for me, being a union carpenter, there are so many benefits and, you know, you can start off mm-hmm. by earning good money right away and they right put away. you through college like apprenticeships. That's exactly right. And we are seeing more programs, not just like in the trades, but in things that you're doing right now. We, we met kids who have radio shows uh, as part of their day, cool. right? Because, oh, it's phenomenal. Um, we have, you know, industrial arts and all kinds of things that are happening right now in schools. The thing I learned when we were doing Measure 98 is in the recession from a couple, you know, a decade or so ago, schools cut those programs because they're not cheap to run, right? right? Um, We went from, I want to say 1,200 before the recession to half that after the recession. Uh, 1,200 classes offered throughout the state to about half that after because those were the first things cut. And Measure 98 allowed districts to restore those programs and modernize them. So it's not, you know, we, we say not your mama's or your daddy's woodshop class from, right. from back in the day. It's it's a different program uh, with the same sort of, I mean, if I had, if I could build a tiny house instead of learning geometry, <laughs> if I had that option, I would have taken it, right? right? Like, that, oh God, geometry nearly broke me. Um, and so we're seeing those things paired together where kids can learn geometry and algebra, but in an applied setting. And districts are using Measure 98 dollars to do that. Oh, I so love that's, that. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I my favorite thing about this this job is that I used to get to visit schools. Right, I used to get to go and meet kids and teachers and see these programs in action. And I cannot wait to do that again. Yeah, because you learn so much and you see so much about what's how the how the words you put on the page impact the actual people's lives, and that's that's a really cool thing. My guest is Toya Fick, the Oregon Executive Director of Stand for Children. So getting back to Measure 98, what what was the inspiration for the ballot measure? Sure. So we have been working at the state level for a while and really, really tried to have a conversation we're having now over the last, you know, I've been in this role seven years ish now. So we've been having this conversation for a while and started to see that it's really hard to sort of give the direction right from the state level. Um, we had, I think Governor Kitzhaber had a plan to do a lot of what we put into Measure 98 in his budget, and that didn't go anywhere. And so we were just like, no, these are things that work. We've seen these things work. We've seen when people focus on ninth graders that their um, on-track rates go up, and it's a huge predictor of graduation. If you're on track at the end of ninth grade, which just means you have six credits under your belt, you are twice as likely to graduate. Wow. That's our own data saying that, right? So we've seen that when kids, I think at the time, Portland, uh, a friend of mine who worked at Portland Public at the time said, you know, our graduation rates for kids who take two or more career technical education classes is 91%. 
and I nearly fell out of my chair, right? Like 91%. That was in 2015 when we were writing that measure 98. And I thought that needs to be on the front page of the paper. That needs to be in this law. We need to provide the dollars and the direction to do this thing, right? To do more of what works. That was the impetus for measure 98. We didn't want to do some new shiny object or some silver bullet. There are none. We wanted to do what works and do more of what works throughout the state. Wow. So the three pieces we put in there are data driven by our own data and they're research backed. And we wanted to make sure that we provide opportunities for all the kids. Like we don't want a, a school to add CTE classes and not make sure that all the kids have access to it. Right. Or at college level classes and only give certain college bound or college material kids that opportunity. So no, that's, that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> we, are, we want more opportunities for all of our kids, particularly those who have been left behind by our system. And that's what we, that's what we aim to do in a ballot measure. And we got enough votes to pass it and then got enough votes to get it funded. And that was not, neither of those things were small feats. No, <laughs> congrats, congratulations. And thank, thank you. And thank you for doing that and, and for oh, making gosh, this happen. Of I, I think it, I, I agree. It's so important. And as I said, even though I don't have kids, I do understand that they are the future and we need to take care of them. Like we need to take care of our elderly, <laughs> you know, it, it's absolutely it's two, two sides of the same coin. And absolutely. I, I, you know, you mentioned graduation rates and I remember when I first got to Portland in 2008, I was shocked at the graduation rates in Oregon. I was you really and shocked. And so this is this is really good news yeah. in terms of 10, was it a 10% increase in graduation rates? Uh, we've seen a, about a 10 point increase overall over the last couple of years. Wow. Um, so yes, it's, and it's, and it's in some districts even higher. Uh, I moved to Portland in 2010 and I'm an education nerd. I was a teacher, I worked in DC on education. And so came here looking at the data and go, wait, hold on. How, what <laughs> is yeah. that just for, is that just for black kids or is that just for certain kinds of kids? No, it was the overall graduation rates. And that meant that certain kids had lower graduation rates. And we were just, I was just floored. Um, and I thought, well, who, who is working on a different direction? What is happening here? Mm-hmm. How can, you know, uh, the organization I work for whose mission is to make sure kids, more kids get to, to graduation prepared for the future. What can we do to help? Mm. this problem help solve this problem and that's sort of our approach to to how we do our work well it's an important mission toya fix so um what work still needs to be done um for the main funding formula and and uh stand for children that's a good question we are working right now with uh, all kinds of coalitions and um, associations and legislators to look at our funding formula to say is there something else here that we need to do um, we stand for children have an opinion that we, and we think that, um, we need to actually account for race in our funding formula. And so figure out how we, you know, provide a boost to kids who have been historically underserved by race, right? Like that happens in our schools often and more often than we would like to, to talk about. Um, and so making sure that that is part of this conversation as well as the direction piece, right? So making sure that the the, the dollars that go into the formula for kids living in poverty go to those kids, right? Uh, but also thinking about what are the pieces in that uh, boost, uh, on that list of things that kids can, districts can get a boost for that are missing and that we need to have a conversation about. Um, and so, yes, it, that's, it's an active live conversation. We talk about it all the time and hopefully we'll be able to produce legislation that passes this session to start to address these issues. 
And lastly, what can listeners do to help start the process of, of changing the system and, and working with people like you? I say all the time that your experience matters. Your story is data with a soul, right? Uh, so if something is having a negative impact on your life, think about which entity can make that better and start to tell your story to those folks, right? Whether it's the school board, the state board of education, uh, the legislature, right? Like we need folks who uh, whose, whose lives are impacted by the work that we're doing to help inform us. That's where we get our best ideas, not from reading white papers, but really talking to people who have lived experience in this system, whether it's my kids or somebody else's kids or me as a parent, does not matter. Your story is data with a soul. And so start talking to the folks who can help make that story, I mean, make your situation better um, and, and get to work. So that's what we aim to do at Stand. I love it. Leaving us with a great quote as well, data with the soul. Thank you yes. so much. Uh, our guest was uh, Toya Fick, Oregon Executive Director of Stanford Children, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring quality education for all children. Also one of the primary authors of the successful ballot measure 98 in 2016. Toya Fick, thanks for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. Take care. Thanks to Toya for joining the local. As we celebrate a year of the local, there are many people to thank. A huge thanks to our production team. Executive editor extraordinaire, Will Romy. Talk program coordinator, Miranda Selinger. Editors and writers, Christine Alexander. DJ Ambush, John Collier, Jonathan Covington-Brame, Nina Davitt, Kate Gay, Nebraska Lucas, Sophie Malon. Joey McLone, Brian Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Joey Palchek, Carla Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi, and to co-executive producer Jefferson Smith. Thank you, Jefferson, for being the vision, the voice, and the support behind The Local. You willed this into existence and created something special. Thank you. And I'm Emily Gilliland. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, the Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, Oregonian, the Bend Bulletin, Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Street Roots, KGW, and news partners over the last year, Bridgeliner, Street Roots, and the Portland Mercury. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for supporting us. Your contributions and support keep us going. And thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.